So this is where I admit, as some of you know, that yes, I am a fan of the New York Yankees. And this is, yes, because past is precedent in this case, where some of you groan, if not boo. And this is where some of you have decided to forgive me for the fact that I'm a New York Yankees fan. And this is where some of you have not forgiven me yet, uh, but you're still working on it. Some of you decide that you don't want to work on it. You don't want to forgive me and you want to leave this congregation right now. (laughs) That part hasn't actually happened, but Philadelphia sports culture being what it is, it wouldn't surprise me if it happened sometime. So part of being a fan of the New York Yankees means that, you know, sometimes you get wrapped up in the history of the thing. And, you know, this idea of being a Yankees fan has this lore and this heritage. And last Sunday night, this was on full display when the New York Yankees retired the number number two of their prior past captain, Derek Jeter. Now, Derek Jeter, the shortstop, five-time World Series champion, soon-to-be Hall of Famer, uh, he's the kind of Yankee that I have said, people said to me countless times over the years, I hate the Yankees, but I like Jeter. <laughs> you know, as it's often said, he played the game the, the right way, with professionalism and grace and class, and he always comported himself well, and he was one hell of a player. So all that said, I'm about to be the rare Yankees fan who critiques the Yankees right now. It actually happens. (laughs) Actually, being a Yankees fan is not good for my spiritual growth because we win too much. I I mean that intentionally. I do. Trust me, we're going to get around to that. It breeds a sense of entitlement. It breeds a sense of the natural state is to win. And as the rest of you sports fans know, that's not the case all the time, right? Sorry, now I'm giving it to you a little bit. So this is what happened last Sunday night or just before the uh, ceremony that you see pictured here. Thanks for letting us have some fun, folks. Um, there was a long interview on one of the sports networks with Derek Jeter, and he was referencing his relationship with the late... And I think we can say accurately, not so great or the very least infamous former owner of the Yankees, George Steinbrenner, who owned the Yankees most of the time, almost all the time that Jeter was a player. And he said, I agreed with Mr. Steinbrenner. I agreed that if we got to the end of a season and we didn't win the World Series, I agree that that season was a failure. There is so much wrong with this attitude, I don't know where to begin. It's one thing to say we failed to win the World Series, and a whole other thing to say the season itself was a failure. Perhaps the most beloved team I'm talking about in terms of individual seasons that I will ever root for was the 2001 New York Yankees. The World Series that year happened, as some of you might remember, right after September 11th. I, who was in South Florida a few years into my first ministry, my heart was in New York City, as so many of our folks, so many of us were. I mean, my sister, just one of the many people I know who lived in Manhattan at that time, her apartment was in the literal, not the metaphoric, the literal shadow of where the Twin Towers stood. You had to, for example, if you wanted to see the top of the towers, you had to stick your head out her window and look up. 
That's how close she was. And so this Yankees team playing in the midst of a devastated city ended up losing that World Series. Some of you will remember, and perhaps some of you with fondness will remember, losing that World Series in the seventh game on the final pitch. It was not a fun moment for me. But that team I loved because they connected me to something within my heart and they helped to connect a city and give them a focus for a time in the midst of terrible tragedy. Focusing on something that provided joy. So there is so much wrong with this attitude that if we don't win the World Series, the season was a failure. That season was not. In fact, I think if we don't learn how to lose, then actually we don't really learn how to live. This is at the heart of today's message, this story with soul, the series that Reverend Lee and I are continuing up through next Sunday about spiritual wisdom contained within kids' literature. And we're also syncing this with what's going on in you spirit. So if you want to talk to your kids, if you have kids in you spirit, ask them about today's book and what they got out of it. Maybe share with them what you got out of it as well. It's called The Most Magnificent Thing. And it is about this little girl, never named, and her little dog, never named. And this thing that becomes the most magnificent thing that is never named. We don't even know what it is. We just know that she is creating the most magnificent thing. And, and, however, it doesn't go well. This skilled inventor. All these different iterations of how she wants it to go. And it doesn't work well if you show the next slide. The angrier she gets, the faster she works. She smashes pieces into shape. She jams parts together. She pummels the little bits in. Her hands feel too big to work, and her brain is too full of all the not right things. If only the thing would just work. And it doesn't. And she grows more frustrated and more frustrated and more frustrated. And some of you, I was already going to ask this question, but some of you are already nodding along. Think of yourself in the position when you are trying to create the most magnificent thing. Or maybe it's the most average thing. (laughs) And think about those moments when your productivity is not going according to form. Think about how you are like this little unnamed girl here, the inventor. She isn't producing what she wants to. And unfortunately, this kind of attitude, this frustration, is mirrored in our larger culture. We see this fixation with productivity all the time in our lives. Many of us see this in our job places. It shows up in our schools. Like, it's astounding to me still. That with everything we know about how kids develop, everything that developmental theory tells us, everything we know about education, and still... What's the first stuff to get cut? The non-productive things. Art and music and recess. Because these things, quote-unquote, don't help kids learn when, in fact, it's the opposite. These things help kids develop. All this anxiety about productivity 
It actually means we end up punishing the kids who actually are struggling the most, the kids who are most traumatized, the kids who are most resource deprived, who need more than any of us do. And we all need it, the opportunity for play, for openness, for non-productivity, for non-doing, that these things are withdrawn from those kids especially. Recess, art, music, whatever you want to call it, the creative, these things speak to something much deeper than productivity. What's the collection of poems a few years ago from Robert Bly? Uh, The soul is here for its own joy. That's what all this playfulness is about. This playfulness also helps us heal, helps us trust helps us connect on a very deep level. And yet there are so many forces arrayed against this kind of connection in our society. In one of the final classes I took this semester, mental health, and working my way through this part-time Master of Social Work program, as many of you know. And we were focused on this last week of mental health on personality disorders, which are some of the most difficult mental health disorders to treat, things like narcissistic, personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. There is hope, but because these personality disorders are so close to the core functioning of who a person is, so close to the center of their identity, it takes an awful lot of time to earn trust and establish empathy to help a person want to change and then to change. And so I raised my hand. See, I'm just at the end of my first year, and I haven't started my field education, my internship yet. I will next fall, but from my fellow classmates who are full-time, I've heard a lot of stories this past year about the rather insidious and harmful role that insurance limitations play upon people seeking help. And I've heard story after story about people being released or therapy ending before the help was really achieved or the healing happened. And so I raised my hand and I asked the professor, I said, for everything you're saying about treating of personality disorders, this sounds like this takes a long time to establish trust and empathy. And she's been in the field for like 40 years and I could see this look pass over her face like what she really wanted to do was say something really hopeless and honest. <laughs> and she just kind of sighed. And she said, yeah, it takes time to encourage people to change, to cultivate trust that will allow that zone of safety in which people can begin to feel that maybe there might be a different path for them. It takes time. And the truth is, is that when we're focused on productivity above all else, when we get frustrated and shut down and we don't allow ourselves to engage a deeper creativity, we lose something. We lose perhaps the most real dimension of human life that is also the most hidden dimension of human life. It takes time to access these ways of being. Some of you might know that um, within the Greek language, ancient Greek language, there are two different words for time. One is chronos. Think of it, chronology. Time moves forward. Straight arrow this way. We're born, we die. Straight ahead, along the horizon. But the Greeks had a different word for time. And it's called kairos. If chronos moves this way, kairos moves this way. 
Kairos time is often referred to as a time of revelation, of paradigm shifts, of new revolutionary awareness. And so a world that operates only according to Kronos time will be constantly questing after what it never has enough of. Always questing for something that is receding in front of it. The Kairos moment, however, is what happens when we don't have to get anxious or don't engage the anxiety, even if we feel anxious, to have to know it all right now. When we can step back and inquire, letting go of the need to even know and certainly to control, what is this thing? What is this reality? What am I? What are you? And to allow ourselves to be surprised and to have our experience reframed by Kairos. It is not the way that our society has structured time and we bear a lot of illnesses and suffering because of it. Very often, so many of us are like the unnamed little girl. <laughs> Frustrated, not sure where to turn. And this is where the little dog matters. The little dog, also unnamed. The little dog who is not smart. (laughs) But the little dog who is incredibly wise. (laughs) Because the little dog sees the inventor, girl, pet owner, and can do nothing absolutely to make the most magnificent thing come to be. And suggest instead, hey, let's take a walk. (laughs) And it is not (laughs) what the inventor little girl wants to do. Think about it. You're making the most magnificent thing. There is no time to waste. The world needs this. This needs to be in existence. Take a walk. (laughs) But maybe her frustration has reached the point of accepting loss and failure. And so she takes a walk. And as she goes about her walk without intending to, she starts to realize that this most magnificent thing she has started to put together, hey, that part of it isn't so rotten, and hey, this part of it might work, and this part of it might be repurposed, and things start to shift. I think there is a great, great lesson and a great practice here for all of us who would hope to make progress in this life, which is this. For every step we hope to take forward, we also have to take one step deeper and inward. For every step outward towards progress, a step which outwardly may not appear as a step at all, but is a step inward more deeply into our experience. When I was young and new in ministry, I was part of a colleagues group where I was serving at that time in South Florida. And there was uh, a guy who I won't name. I couldn't remember his name anyway, but he was a retired member of the group, a former military guy. And whenever the group would talk about planning our next retreat, he would immediately shoot up his hand and say, as a former military man, we do not retreat. (laughs) Yeah. Groan, like literal groans in the room. We do not retreat. And like finally the group was just like, buddy, give it a rest. (laughs) But like in also a wholesome sense, like give it a rest. Don't you need to sleep? 
And, and there's like this false dichotomy there, right? Also, this identity, I'm a military man, I can never retreat. Well, sometimes the best retreats, like what's the Bob Marley line? He who fight and run away, live to fight another day. Like there's some truth in that, right? But as though this commitment to fighting for something or committing ourselves to something and retreat are hostile and can't exist at the same time and mutually exclusive. And that's totally false. I think of this image whenever I think of the necessity of taking a step forward and simultaneously taking a step inward. That is uh, the person who many of us know as Malcolm X. At the end of his pilgrimage, within a year or so before he was assassinated. If you know anything about the story of Malcolm X, this is when he was silenced by the nation of Islam for understanding the hypocrisies within the nation of Islam. And so what he undertook was one of the five pillars of traditional Islam, the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And there, and some of you have read these words, I'm not going to quote them entirely, but go and take a look at them. They're beautiful because they convey that sense of creative surprise, of Kairos time, of something new revealing itself. And he says, when he was on the Hajj, on the pilgrimage to Mecca, he encountered Muslims with hair that was so blonde and skin that was the whitest of white and eyes that were the bluest of blue. And to him who had subscribed, understandably, given his life experience and given white supremacy in America, had understood that white people could play no role whatsoever in working for justice and the liberation of his people. For the first time, something opened. And by the way, this was not a kumbaya moment. That song Kumbaya is a wonderful song, but it's become a stand in for like, you know, a naive version of let's just all get along and not pay attention to our differences. Malcolm X was just as radical after he left the Hajj as when he went on it, but something changed. And indeed, there are historians who believe that if he had lived, in fact, he would have been an even more potent voice for justice and against white supremacy in America because he began to see that there were additional partners that he could work with. Malcolm X actually stopped being Malcolm X then. Do you know that? His name, the name that he died with, was a new name, bespeaking his transformation, his Kairos moment, El-Haj Malik El-Shabazz, a new identity, a new awareness. This is what happens when we can admit and open and accept our failures, our flaws, our losses, when no matter how productive we were, and I know a few writers or have read a few writers more prolific than Malcolm X was. When we can accept that productivity will not get us all the way deeper in this life towards growth, then something will open up. A beautiful transforming mystery and back to Jarek Jeter. This is why that whole season is a failure if we don't win the World Series is so wrong. Because it only partakes of that Kronos time. We know how all this is going to end. Eventually there will be other people at Wellsprings and none of them will be us. This is a truth of life. John Updike, years ago when he was writing a series of short stories about a marriage that came to a close, he said these words. These were the first words that kind of fired my own spiritual imagination when I was still really quite outwardly secular and in college. 
He says that a marriage ends as less than ideal, but all things end under heaven. And if time is held to be invalidating, then nothing real succeeds. He's talking about that chronos understanding of time. If time is held to be invalidating, then nothing real succeeds. This is why all of us, spiritual and religious, spiritual but not religious, not spiritual and not religious, religious and not spiritual, whatever, however you want to cut it. We need Kairos time if we want to fully develop as human beings. It tells us something about that thing that is transcendent and intimate, that is not just a part of life, but actually in the truest sense may save us in this life, not to get somewhere else, but to fully inhabit here, to live beyond a life of productivity and seeing ourselves only through our projects and seeing ourselves only through our effectiveness. This past week I read an article about George Scholes, who some of you might remember, I think he was Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan. And there's this wonderful line in here about how he would take an hour off every day to do absolutely nothing. It was called Scholes time. <laughs> it was that well known within the administration. And it was said that he said that you have to learn to waste an hour so you don't waste your life. <laughs> I love that. You have to learn to waste an hour so you don't waste your life. One of the people we read here regularly in Wellsprings 2.0 is John Spong, the former very progressive, deeply radical Episcopal bishop of Newark, New Jersey. And one of the phrases he uses that troubles an awful lot of you, at least from what I've heard over the decade plus of Wellsprings, is when he encourages all of us to love wastefully. I recycle everything. I don't waste anything. I make sure I am efficient in terms of my use of resources. But what John Shelby Spong is encouraging us by loving wastefully is to love deeper than just about effectiveness or productivity. Because when we learn to love wastefully, we love abundantly. Like the paradox, uh, don't just do something, sit there. (laughs) That's Kairos time. That's loving wastefully yourself. Not to get somewhere else. Not going to make us better or smarter or faster or more dominant. It's also not going to make us weaker for that matter. It will give us just one thing, Kairos time. To be more in touch. And when I see so much of the suffering of our world, it all comes down to this. So much out of touchness. With ourselves, with each other, with our suffering and our joy. A few years ago, there was something in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship online magazine that said, with all the hype around mindfulness, I teach mindfulness, I love mindfulness, I practice mindfulness, but all the hype around mindfulness that eventually they hoped there would be a study that would say about mindfulness, it is only proven to demonstrate two things. It will make you kinder and wiser. People come to their cushions, myself included. That's how I first came to my cushion with an agenda to get something and get somewhere. Here's the best part of the practice. It gets you and it's got me nothing at all. Which is the most liberating thing. I don't stop having agendas. None of us do. But to see through them to something deeper, more loving, more gracious, more open, more amazing, that has so many words and no words at all. That's always my hope. 
and I think I'll start to make this explicit when I start new mindfulness groups, is see your agendas. They're not wrong. They're not bad. But this practice is not about any of our agendas. About something more loving, more mysterious. And by the way, this brings us back to the most magnificent thing, which is never named, by the way, in the entire book. Do you know what it is? It's a sidecar for her dog to ride along with her. Oh, yeah, that's Kairos in you saying that is the most magnificent thing. Because, folks, it's just a sidecar, right? (laughs) But if we remember the joy, the creativity, not just the productivity, of what it is to open to this life once again with the spirit of a soulful friend, we see that this magnificence has never left us and, in fact, cannot be manufactured by us. We can only open to it and allow it and become magnificent. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? The love, a love that has started out abundant and wasteful, and because it is abundant and wasteful, it is inexhaustible. May we allow ourselves on this gorgeous day, which for some of us may not be gorgeous inside and may be troubled. May we allow ourselves on this day of sunshine to receive once again that reminder that life is not elsewhere, somewhere else, someplace else, someone else. That life is us and we are a part of it, which is the all. And so may we allow ourselves to love abundantly and love wastefully and to be loved abundantly and to be loved wastefully and to recognize once again that this is magnificence, nothing that can be made, a gift waiting for us to open it. Amen.